Hebrews chapter 4, we're going um, to pick up at verse 3. And so many of you know we're just making our way through the book of Hebrews, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I will backtrack a little bit, backtrack and just cover some of the context, but we're at Hebrews 4, verse 3. If you're there with me, I'm going to ask you to stand, if it's okay, really in honor of God and his word, just, just for a little bit. I won't read all through 11 verses, I'll just read to, uh, we'll stop at verse 6, just to help give us a running start, okay? All right. Remember the writer, we don't know who it is, some people think it's Paul the Apostle, some think it's Apollos. Something it's Barnabas. He, the writer never identifies himself, but we do know it, whoever wrote it's inspired of God's Spirit. So the writer says, For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he, speaking about God, has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then again, in this place, the idea is again in this other place, they, they shall not enter my rest. And so he says, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those whom it was first preached did not enter it because of disbelief. Okay, I'm going to read to verse 7. It says, and again, then he designates a certain day, saying to David, today, after such a long time, as it's been said, and he quotes again from where he's quoted before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. All right. It's a confusing portion, but we're going to pray. We'll ask God to help make sense of it and then how it applies to our lives today. Father, thank you for our time. Lord, as reminded this morning, even as we read your word, God, there's some times where it's, it's a little confusing, but we trust that by your spirit, you're the one who wrote it. You're the one who knows what it means. You're the one who knows how it's supposed to work. And so we really just come to you in humility, asking that you would help us to understand it, and then beyond that, Lord, that we would do it. Jesus, you likened a, a person who heard your word and applied your truths as a wise person who would build their house upon a rock. And it was the foolish person who heard your word and then did nothing. Lord, we, we want to be wise this morning. We know the waves and the wind of this world uh, crash hard. There's a lot that can come at us. And so, God, help us to keep our foundation in you upon your word. Lord, speak to our hearts, I pray. And I thank you for our time of study. It's in Jesus' name that we ask and pray these things together. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, would you take a moment and just kind of wave at somebody and uh, smile behind your mask, elbow bump, if uh, you feel comfortable with that? All right. I'm going to do a little bit of a review, so just bear with me. I know it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Hebrews. I was gone. I came back. We bounced back in, and then we had uh, Palm Sunday, then Easter Sunday, and so now we're back. Uh, the last time we were together in Hebrews, I told you that the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews to let them know they didn't have to live like Hebrews anymore. Um, even why it's called Hebrews, the original audience was mostly Jewish Christians who had come to faith 
in Jesus Christ right there in the first century. And so they came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and placed their faith in who he was and what he said and what he did. And when that happened, we understand by history and also by context of this letter, life was not easy for them. And that's true for some of you. When you came to know Christ, life didn't get easier in some ways. It might have even gotten more challenging. And for these guys, it got challenging because their faith as Jews and their culture and community were intertwined. It wasn't as though you could separate one from the other. They basically went together. And so for them to believe in Christ in one sense meant they were uh, turning their back on their culture. And of course, their family and their friends, their neighbors, the people they went to high school with, uh, the community at large, they didn't like it. And so there's a lot of pressure on these believers, pressure to basically renounce Christ and to return back to their old religious ways. Now, the writer of the book understands this dynamic very well. And so he writes to them to encourage them, basically to tell them simply, hey, keep on keeping on. And the one main theme that we come across in every single chapter, uh, and we don't get very far in each verse before we come back to this core um, exhortation, and that is, keep your eyes on Jesus. Consider him, look to him. I mean, the main theme, and we're going to just say it every time we gather together, it is fix your focus on Christ. And, and all through this letter, the writer is going to remind us, Jesus is greater. He is better. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the perfect high priest. He's the pioneer that goes ahead of us. And all of that because they, and like us today, there are a lot of things that sought to discourage them from following the Lord. There are a lot of things in their life that was a distraction for them. And so they were tempted to get their eyes off of the Lord and on the neighbors and on themselves and on the world. And so the key really is, it seems simple, but there's a discipline to it, right? Like, we got to keep our eyes on Jesus. There's a lot that can pull at us. There's a lot that wants to derail us. But we got to keep our eyes on the Lord. And everything else and any other pursuit is sinking sand. Everything else is an empty endeavor. The writer establishes this fact right from the get-go. I mean, the opening verse of Hebrews chapter 1, he comes straight out of the gate. You know, he just starts throwing punches, if you will. And he begins with, listen, God in times past spoke through prophets and messengers but in these last days in which we're living, God spoke directly to us through his son. He is the heir of all things and he is the creator of all things. And so right from the get-go, the writer establishes Jesus is supreme. Jesus is greater than anything, fill in the blank, anything that you can imagine. And so the argument then goes, well, if he's greater than angels, he's greater than prophets, he's greater than Moses, which have some shock value to the Jews. He's greater than Joshua. In fact, he's even greater than the high priest and the whole sacrificial system put together. He's the fulfillment of all those things. 
if that is true, and it is, then why would you settle for anything else? Like, why would you cheat yourself and make any other thing a pursuit in your life? See, to do so would be, in a sense, a waste of time. It would be foolishness for you. And so the writer wants to establish this. He wants to help prove his point. And so what does he do? He goes and gives us a history lesson. He goes to the Old Testament and again, the, the original audience would be tracking. They'd be like, oh yeah, we get it. And so he would go back in their history and say, hey, remember what happened? Do you remember how God led our great, great, great grandma and grandpas? They were in bondage, enslaved in Egypt. And you remember how God led Moses and brought them out and said, hey, I'm going to bring you into this promised land. It's going to be awesome for you. You're not going to have any more bondage. You're going to live in freedom. Do you remember that? And so he gives this history lesson, and he makes a parallel, and he develops this parallel. The parallel is this, that the, the promise of that geographic destination that represented rest for them, that that is a picture, that is a foreshadow. It's a preview of a spiritual rest that God wants to give us. And along with that, though, there was a warning. And the warning was this. Just like great-great-grandma and grandpa who saw God work, who heard God speak, who had the promise given to them, and yet it was unrealized, right? they forfeited it, because they didn't believe. He tells us plainly, it's because of disobedience and unbelief they didn't get to enter. And just like the spiritual promise, he gives a warning. He says, don't make the same mistake. You don't want to miss the promise of rest and peace that God provides spiritually. And so along the way, he'll revisit this warning as well. He'll say, don't do what they did. They wrecked their lives. They didn't move forward in faith. In one sense, he would say, you see those fools? Don't be like them. And so what we're told very plainly, and we understand, is that God isn't playing games. That he takes this very seriously, and so we should too. And so in the opening of chapter 4, verse 1, the writer tells us, Let's, let us fear. Make sure you have a healthy understanding Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Lest you come short of what God wants to give you. And so it's a sobering thing. But now he moves on and he narrows his discussion down to this theme. And it's the theme of rest. What a great theme. <laughs> Let's have a retreat and we'll have just the theme of rest, right? Eight times in nine verses, he's going to use that word or a form of that word. But each time he uses it, it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. And so that's where it gets a little bit confusing. So I'll do my best to walk through these verses with you and try to explain what the writer meant and how it applies to us today. So in verse 3, he says, For we who have believed do enter that rest... And then he gives a contrast, because God said, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, 
in the previous verses, the writer already told us there was a group that didn't get to enter in to what God had promised. And the reason they didn't, what disqualified them? Disobedience. They didn't mix what they heard with faith, is what he says. They heard God's word, they watched God work, and yet they didn't take him at his word. And so it availed them nothing. They forfeited what God wanted to give them. And and gang, by the way, that's a precarious place for anybody to be. To come to a place where you hear God's word and watch God work and see the Lord do amazing things around you and in you, and yet you remain unmoved in your heart, he'd be careful. The writer offers a contrast. Yes, there's a group that didn't get to go in, but gets... Who gets to go in? For we who have believed, we do enter that rest. So who gets to enter? Well, it's those who believe. We realize he's no longer talking about great-great-grandpa and grandma anymore. He uses the pronoun we. He's talking about himself now and those who believe now. What does he mean then that we who believe get to enter that rest? I don't want to say obviously, but I would make the point to say, well, evidently he's not talking about a geographic destination anymore. That's already happened. He he must be talking about something else. And he is. And again, this is where it it can get a little bit complex. He's going to talk about rest, but he's going to use different examples. And he's going to take these different examples and he's basically going to overlay them You guys know what a Venn diagram is? You know, the circles? This thing is true and this thing is true. You know, you put them together and then there's a common ground. In one sense, he's going to do that. And the first example he uses is one that we've already been introduced to, and it's the idea that the journey of the ancestors, the journey of the children of Israel into the promised land, that was a picture of rest. Canaan was a promise of rest. See, God had told them, um, I'm going to bring you to this land in Deuteronomy 25, 19. And I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies and and the land that you're going to possess. In fact, he says there's already going to be pre-built houses. You just got to move in. It's yours. Prior to that, in the book of Exodus, he would say through Moses, I promise I'm going to rescue you from oppression in Egypt. I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. Basically, the idea, it's going to just be productive, produce. You don't have to buy canned anything. And God says, I'm going to give you rest. And so that, that's the promise they had. And yet we know that they wandered the desert for 40 years. It shouldn't have taken them that long. And all the jokes aside, like they didn't want to stop and ask for directions, right? I, I'm the same way. No, it's because they disobeyed the Lord. And so God in his grace said, okay, I'm still going to provide for you, but you forfeit the promise that I had for you. It's the next generation under a guy by the name of Joshua that's going to take them and actually lead them in. But that whole process, you know, it wasn't easy. There was struggles and stresses. There were battles People were complaining. 
They didn't like the menu, right? Remember, God provided manna. They're like, we're tired of manna. Manna cotty, manna giddy, we want meat, you know. Well, thank you. <laughs> and so there are battles along the way. And, and some of you can relate because for them it was a constant packing up and moving. They get to one place, unpack, and all of a sudden Moses said, no, it's time to go. Here's your orders. <laughs> Pack back up. And so they're living on the go. And they're waiting for that time to have a home to call their own. They could paint the walls whatever color. They could hang pictures. They'd have a garage with two car, you know, for two donkeys, you know, and <laughs> tools and their own bed. Just a place to call their own, right? Rest, real rest. And that's what they were looking forward to. But even in that rest, and it was a type of rest, we realized what the writer is saying is that, well, that wasn't the final rest. That's just a preview. That's just a foreshadow of what God was still wanting to do, what God was really wanting to provide. Because there was the group under Joshua that gets to Canaan, and they do enter into that land. But if you read through Joshua and First and Second Kings, you read through the rest of what happens, you know that, oh, it wasn't a true rest. It's, a, it's not the totality of what God intended because they still had battles. The Philistines were in the land, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the flashlights and dynamites and out of sight, right? All of those ites were still, all right, I have to entertain myself. They're all, they're all still in the land. And so they're still battling. They still had noisy neighbors with barking dogs. They got into their house, and guess what? The home associate, homeowners association said, no, you can't paint it that color. Right? They still had to deal with the opposition. And very real for them is they still then had this form of temptation as they looked around and, wa- and saw how the neighbors lived, and they were drawn into that idolatry. This pagan culture around them that glorified sensuality and lasciviousness, and they're like, ooh, I think we like that. And so the author, back in verse 1, and then later on in verses 8 and 9, he explains, yes, it's a type of rest. Yes, it's an example of rest. Yes, our ancestors, because they didn't believe, lost their opportunity, but that's not the final rest. He says there's still a rest that remains. It's just the sampler dish. It's a prototype. It's just the first deposit. Any of you have ever been to Disneyland in Cali or, or maybe here in Japan? How about Disney World? Only a couple. We need to make, like, after COVID, we need to make, like, a church Disney. Anyways, if you ever get a chance to go to Disneyland in Tokyo or Disney Sea, which is unique because there's nothing else like it, I highly encourage you to go. There's a Costco nearby. You can go buy churros for 100 yen, save some money. Anyways, all right. Imagine, if you will, for those of you who've been there, that you bring the person next to you that didn't raise their hand. They've never been there. And you take them to Disneyland, and they go on the first ride, and they're like, this is amazing. This is great. All right, let's go. And you're like, what? No, no, no. We still have hours of other lines to stand. No, we, there's, still, there's still other rides, right? There's still much more to experience. 
It's not defined by just the one ride, right? It's not defined by just Magic Mountain. Or not, not Magic, Splash Mountain. I'm mixing my metaphor, sorry. <laughs> no, it's just the beginning. There's so much more to this. I mean, it's the same way with this idea of God's rest. This is just one deposit. It's just the beginning. And so the writer uses this one example, lays down this picture, and then he picks up another one, and he, and he kind of just transitions right into it. It's a little bit of an awkward transition. He says, but we who believe, we've entered that rest. There was a group that didn't. God said they won't enter his rest. He says, but from the foundations of the world, God made this promise, and then he rolls into, and on the seventh day of creation, God rested on the seventh day. Like, how, what, how did you get there? And so he adds this other example of God's rest. Remember, it's a history lesson. So he's like, all right, hey, let's go back to the book of Joshua. Let's go back to the book of Exodus, and we're going to do a little bit of a review. Remember what happened with our ancestors? You guys got that picture? Learn the lesson from that? Don't be like them? Okay, let's go back even further. Let's go to the book of Genesis. And what we realize his intent is he, he wants to demonstrate that Oh, God's rest wasn't a new concept. It didn't just show up in Moses' day. It wasn't something that all of a sudden God's talking about. No, this is something that God talked about from the beginning. From the beginning of creation, God's talking about rest. And so it's the second picture now he brings into uh, the discussion. And we find out that the theme of rest has its beginning, well, at the beginning. It's part of the creation account. And hopefully what we begin to realize is that, oh, God's rest is something greater than even what Canaan represented. God's form of rest is something that even God himself enjoyed, he partook of, and then what we understand is he then gave it as a gift to his creation. Our time doesn't permit us to dig into all of it, but understand this, that God provided an example. It's modeled in the creation account. Six days he worked, and on the seventh day he rested. Why did God rest on the seventh day? Was he tired? No. I think we all have uh, decent theology to know that God, if God is all-powerful, right? if he is omnipotent, that means then he is he can do anything. He doesn't run out of power. He doesn't run it out of energy. He is all-powerful, and it means everlasting. He doesn't need to recharge. He doesn't need to rest, but yet he did. Right? Nothing, nothing in this world has unlimited energy and power. Maybe what comes close are toddlers, right? four- and five-year-olds. Man, where do they get their energy? God doesn't need to rest. But he knows that you and I do. And so he modeled for you and me what we should do. What we get to do. Well, I'll use that. What we should do. So why is the writer, though, talking about creation and God resting on the seventh day? I mean, what, how is he making a connection for us? Here's what I want to submit to you. He's making connection to point out the fact that it's God's rest. It's God's form of rest. It's the pronoun that he uses, his rest. It's God's rest. And so just like God provided a rest for 
in Canaan, God also then provides a rest, an example of rest from his work. And it becomes a model for us. We get invited into that same rest. And the best way I can describe it is to think, imagine if you had just this you know, crazy rich relative who, who liked you. <laughs> I have to add that. And, and they're like, you know what? I got so much money, I don't know what to do with it. I'm going to retire, and so why don't you just quit your job, pack up your family, and I will sponsor you wherever you want to live, and I'll just take care of you for the rest of your life. That's my dream. You know. <laughs> Right? Their retirement becomes yours. Right? They, they impart to you. They provide for you. You just get to enter into what they have already provided for you. In the same way, that's what God does when it comes to rest. He finished the work of creation long ago. Long before Israel came out of Egypt. Long before David, King David writes these words in verse 70 as he makes a quote from Psalm 95. And his point is this. Rest didn't just pop up in Canaan and then fulfilled in Canaan. It was something that existed beforehand. And even though people came into Canaan, guess what? It still exists. That's why David even later still writes about a rest that still remains. But even in that example, we have to take pause just for a little bit. Because I think it's important. The pattern that God gave us for rest is one that he then invites us to come into. See, nothing else was needed to be done. All of it was completed. Do you guys remember what God declared after each day he did work? Right? He creates the world in six days. Seventh day he rested. But what did God declare after each day after he was done? It is good, very good. It is good. It's the same way I feel after the dishes are done. I just, it is good. Then I look over and my kid has another bowl. Throw that away, you know. <laughs> Listen, God in his rest provided a, a pattern, but not only a pattern, a, a principle for us. But guess what? Just like how sin wrecked creation and all that was good was no longer good, Sin wrecked the pattern and the principle of rest as well. Because right after Adam and Eve blow it, even though it shows up in the Mosaic law, you know, one of the things that we find out that God's people weren't doing is they weren't obeying the Sabbath. They were working to get ahead. In fact, if you're familiar with... Um, the Old Testament, you might know that one of the reasons why God even allowed Babylon to conquer the nation of Israel under Nebuchadnezzar and bring them into Babylon, not only because they had fallen into idolatry and pagan worship, but it's Daniel who's reading the book of Jeremiah. Oh, this is not in my notes. You okay, Yumi? You ready? Daniel himself is reading the book of Jeremiah. And he begins to realize, hey, uh, our time's coming up. We get to go back. In the years that were determined, the 70 years that were determined, anybody know how they're determined? For a thousand points? It was how long they had left the Very good, Jenna, yeah. Because they didn't obey the Sabbaths. And so God said, you owe me Sabbaths. 
you owe me this time that you did not take a break and you didn't let the land rest. So that's going to be the determiner how long you're on timeout. So we understand that God's serious about this. And so the writer brings us back to this example and we understand, okay, it's an example because he's talking about God's rest, but, but I think there's, there's something there I just want to park just for a second. It's an example for us to take seriously today. See, but in man's sin, the pattern and principle of rest was rejected and ignored. And guess what? Today, we still live in that same kind of society. Society as a whole, my observation, it shoves the idea of rest to the side. Right? The world that we live in is frenetic. It's constantly in motion. Right? It is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and we, we fall into that. I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I like stores that are open 24 hours. You know? I, I'm, all, I'm often surprised. They close at 8 o'clock. What's wrong with them? You know? But yet at the same time, what comes along with that? Well, our minds aren't at rest and our bodies aren't at rest. Our families aren't at rest. <laughs> it's stress and struggle and striving. Like we, you know, as a whole, right, the great quest for material, pro, material prosperity has become the goal of life. Acquire money, acquire things. And the irony is that uh, we often, you know, we champion the idea of sacrificing rest now so that we can have this, you know, payout of rest later. But, you know, it's built in, if I can say it this way, is there's a sanctified rhythm that God made in creation of work and rest, work and rest. Now, for some of you, work is a bad, you know, it's a four-letter word, work, it's bad. Work sanctified too. And God ordained work. You know, we, we have been uh, brought into the family of God and for the good works that God has prepared beforehand. And, and we're to work hard and, and, and be the best employee and worker that you can be, student, if that's, you know, for some of you. But man, so many people, including Christians, are overworked and stressed out and operating on very little sleep with very to little no time to rest. And so no wonder, you know, energy drinks uh, are on the rise. No wonder then we you know, people are distressed and depressed, having to take different forms of drugs. You know, we, we kind of endure this because we, we've deviated from the, the, the rhythm that God has prescribed. After every day that God worked, he said, it's good. So it's good to work. Don't get me wrong. But you know the very first thing that God calls holy in all of creation on the seventh day, he rested and he sanctified it and he called it holy. You think about that. Every day, it's good, it's good, it's good. On the seventh day, God ceased from work and he says, it's holy. I, I want to submit it this way to you. Sometimes the most holy thing that you can do is rest. And if nothing else, I do believe with all my heart for some of you, that's the word of the Lord for you today that you've been cranking and you've been hustling 
you know, and no one's going to accuse you of being lazy, and no one's going to accuse you of not, you know, going after it, but God's saying to you, you're, you need to take a break. You're going to crash into a wall, and it's going to be ugly. You know, there's an account in, I think it's 1 Kings. We don't have a third service, so I'm just going to go all over. I don't have any notes. Or Yumi, our Japanese. Oh, and also Yuriko-san, she's translating in Spanish downstairs. Sorry. All right, I'll go slow. I think it's 1 Kings 17. You can fact check me later. There's the account of Elijah. Right? God's called him. He does this amazing work. He falls into a little bit of kind of a depression. He goes by a tree, even gets a little bit like, I'm done, just take my life, I'm good, Lord. An angel shows up, and, and I love this scene, the angel shows up, and, and the angel bakes him a cake. Cake is scriptural, right? Gets him up, says, hey, eats angel cake, eat some cake. It's in the Bible. And, uh, and then it says, take a nap. Sometimes you just need to eat cake and take a nap. Oh, that's funny, but I'm serious. You're going to leave there. What did you learn at church today? Eat cake and take a nap. Yes. God models rest for us. And some of us, man, we're just, we're mentally exhausted. We're physically exhausted. And, and it's been self-inflicted. I realize some of you, your job and your school, your rhythm of life, the season's hard right now. I get it. But no, don't neglect the opportunity. See, you don't live by the law anymore, right? What the religious leaders did with, what God, with God's gift, unfortunately, maybe they had good intentions, but, you know, they codified it. They wanted to write out every possible contingency. of What, what does rest look like on the Sabbath day? So much so that even when Jesus was walking and did some things, they began to accuse him like, oh, you and your guys, you're, you're breaking the Sabbath. And, and Jesus kind of retorts back and he basically says, uh, you know who made that up? <laughs> you know who created the Sabbath? You're looking at him. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he adds this. He's like, you guys are mistaken because man wasn't created for the Sabbath. Sabbath was created for the man. The day of rest, the time of rest, that's a gift that God gave you. And the, and the rest of the New Testament tells us this, right? Where God's grace then expounds, for them it was a certain day. But for us, God says, pick any day. Pick any day that you want, as long as you're honoring me. You don't have to feel guilty. I think sometimes that's something we feel like, oh, I feel guilty, I'm taking a, a break, I have so much to do. Where does that come from? I, can I add this? I don't think that comes from the Lord. I think that comes from pressure of society and expectations you put on yourself that God never puts on you. How does God's rest in creation and his rest in Canaan connect? One becomes the example of the other. God provides a principle of rest, physical rest in creation, and then he provides a picture of spiritual rest in Canaan. And the pictures overlap for us. And they become a spiritual picture. And that's where the writer tells us this. He says, again, he designates a certain day 
Well, let me back up verse 6. Therefore it remains that some have to enter it. For those who was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. So now he's talking about this geographic, right? He's using that as an example, but yet he designates a certain day saying, it says in David, it's basically through David, today, after such a long time, after all that's happened, yet David still is talking about this rest. And today then, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. And then he adds this commentary, because if Joshua, if them getting to the promised land by Joshua bringing them in, if that's what God meant, then David wouldn't write about it some years later. Therefore, verse 9, there remains then still this rest that God has provided. And we realize then, oh, he's talking about something else. It's a spiritual rest. All those other ones have application, but they point us to this idea that God still wants to give people rest. And that means the door's still open. The opportunity is still valid. An entire generation lost their, in, their inheritance because they didn't have faith. And today God offers, his offer of rest remains available to any and all. And so that's why you say, hey, and David's talking about today. I mean, that was, that was pertinent in the time that David wrote Psalm 95. It's pertinent in the time that the writer quotes it here some, what, 2,000 years ago? And guess what? We're reading it right now. Guess what? It still pertains now. Today is still today. In fact, in the original Hebrew, you know what today means? Or in Greek? It means today. <laughs> Profound, yes. Eat cake, take a nap, and today means today. It means now. It means don't delay. It means don't, don't shove this off like, ah, I can worry about those things tomorrow. No, the Bible's really, there's a sobering thing. The Bible says, guess what? Nobody's promised tomorrow. We think we have tomorrow, but tomorrow's not a guarantee. Now, get, understand, I'm, the, I am, I, I am a master procrastinator. Like, I live under the mantra, why do today what you can put off till tomorrow? Right? And I convince myself I work better under pressure. You know, just creates this form of excellence. Okay, that might, that might work, you know, with dishes and cleaning your house before guests come over or, or homework. But that, that doesn't work when it comes to your salvation. You don't want to roll the dice there. And so today means today. You know, Jesus gave this sobering parable. He's talking about this man who in today's economy, if you will, you know, he's a farmer who just... God blessed him this one season. He just had all these crops. Today's equivalent would be like the guy invested in Bitcoin or you know, Apple back in the day, and he just made a bank load of money. And he then says to my soul, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just build bigger barns. I'm going to chillax. I'm going to tell my soul, be, soul, be happy, be merry, be fat and happy. And, and, and Jesus says, you know, that guy was a fool. He didn't realize that God would say, you're a fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. Then what are you going to do with all that stuff? And so just a reminder for us. We pursue all these things, and yet the Lord says here, I, I want to give you rest. You don't have to strive and struggle and stress out. 
chasing after these things. See, tomorrow is the road that leads to never. And so today is the day that God wants you to get right with him. Today is the day that you can repent. And so the writer makes this whole case. If, all, if rest was all that Joshua did, then why would David talk about another rest? See, all that Joshua did, that's just a preview. All that God did in creation, that was a preview. Those pictures converge like a Venn diagram. And where do they converge? What's in the center of it all? It's Jesus. The overlap of all of those promises, it's all fulfilled in Jesus. And, and what he's basically saying is this. Where you find true rest today, it's not in a geographic destination. Certainly there's a rest that we can rest and take a break from work. But the rest in our soul that we desire, the rest in our minds, it's found only in Christ. It's found only in a relationship with the Lord. And Jesus tells us the same thing in Matthew chapter 11. He says, hey, are you tired? Are you weary? You feel like you're heavy laden? You're just carrying the weight of the world and all of its struggles and burdens on you? He makes this great invitation. Come, come to me. Come to me. And, and you can take my yoke. The idea that you'll take the lighter burden. He'll do the heavy lifting. For his burden is light. His yoke is easy. And he says, and you'll find rest for your souls. What a great verse, right? Find rest for your souls. I mean, just to hear that gives me peace. But it's not found anywhere else. It's only found in what Jesus has done. It's only found in the person of Christ. I mean, just like God finished the work of creation, Jesus finished the work of salvation. When he hung on the cross, and we just celebrated this uh, you know, last Friday, on Good Friday, and he cried out, it is finished. The work, the plan of salvation was paid for. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased. You've been bought. You get to enter into his rest. And it's just like the song, In Christ Alone. One one. You know, section of the lyrics say, When fears are stilled, when strivings cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of God I stand, in the love of Christ I stand. Gang, we, we can rest in what Christ has done. We can rest in what Jesus has provided for us. It's verse 3, for those of us who have believed, we enter into that rest. And that's the question you need to answer have you entered into that rest? Have you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and believed in him? I'll say this in love because if you haven't, you will remain restless. You will remain on this frenetic journey looking for something. You have to come to Christ today and enter what God has provided. He concludes here in verse or 9 through 11. So there remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, again, it's God's form of rest, himself ceased from his works. So we don't have to earn our salvation. We have to work. 
You know, sometimes we, we think, oh, I, I need to perform. I need to pr- have a certain performance. Achieve certain things for God. Then I'll be happy. Nothing can be further from the truth. Christ did it all. So the conclusion then is that let us therefore. Here's the application. Be diligent to enter that rest, lest anybody miss it. Seems like a paradox, the closing of that, right? Some of your translations will even read, make every effort. It's the idea of work hard to rest. Strive to take a nap. (laughs) Seems like a paradox. But what, what does he mean? I want to submit to you, he certainly doesn't mean salvation. Christ has paid for that. But it does mean we can rest from our own effort to try to live out our faith by our own abilities. You will get tired quick. It certainly means that you can rest from burdens that you're carrying that God never intended for you to carry. Some of you are holding bags that God said you can drop them. You can leave that guilt and shame and and just put it at the foot of the cross where it belonged. You don't need to carry it around anymore. You can find rest for your soul and your heart. See, Christ is our rest. And the invitation then is for us to be diligent to enter that. And I pray that we would. These pictures overlay and they give us a picture of Christ. And the invitation is just to come to him. This morning we're going to have a time of communion. And guess what? That's what we get to do. Just to take a couple minutes and rest. You know, to be, to be like a Mary versus a Martha. Just in that moment, Martha was busy with many things. And Jesus would say to her, Martha, you're distracted by much. And Mary, just in that moment, took the opportunity just to sit at the feet of the Lord and just to hear from him and worship him and with really nothing in expectation other than just to ascribe honor to God. And gang, we, we get to do that today. In our hustle and bustle and you know, the rhythms of our life today, for a couple minutes, I got seven until the bell rings. It's just to sit and allow the Lord to do what he wants to do, to find rest for your souls, okay? All right. The guys are going to come. They're going to pass out the communion elements. Uh, as we've been doing this last year, it's a bread in cup. It's two cups in one. So just be careful when you pull it out of the tray. The worship team's going to come, and they're going to lead us in a time of song. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to just give you the freedom that during our time of worship and song and music, just you feel free to participate. You feel free to partake however you want, you know, just you and the Lord. Or if you're here with your family or your mom or a loved one, you guys can, you know, partake together. And, uh, and I'll just close this in prayer, but we'll just have this time to commune with the Lord, okay? Father, thank you so much for the morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word. God, thank you for the invitation and the promise of rest. Lord, for some, it's, it's literally physical rest that you're telling them. Take a break. For others, Lord, it's, it's a mental rest. We're so worried 
tired from the mental chess game we've been playing, trying to figure out what our next move and decisions should be. Lord, I pray you would just grant your peace that surpasses understanding. Lord, I pray you'd help my brothers and sisters, if anybody's in that place, just to, to give that to you, Lord. As your word invites us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with thanksgiving, we make our request known to you. And Lord, in exchange, you say that then you will give us a peace that surpasses understanding to guard our heart and our minds. Lord, may we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. May we experience just a rest in our own thought life, Lord. God, I pray we'd experience a spiritual rest. That we wouldn't strive, Lord, but that we would be diligent to press into what Christ has already provided. And in one sense, just to be good in there, to be good in that place, to know, Lord, that you did it all. Striving cease. And so, Lord, as we partake of the bread during our time of song, as we partake of the, of the blood, we know, of the cup, we know that it represents your body that was broken for us. We know it represents your blood that was shed for us. And in many ways, it's a reminder of our identity with you. Our life is hidden in yours. As Paul would say, it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Lord, may these truths become our truths. That we would walk in your rest today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.